Hey besties, I have today for you this episode. It's kind of a, what I like to call a book report. It's called Titan of Tehran. It's by Shahrzad Elganian. And for all of my listeners who don't speak Farsi, there are going to be some Farsi words that I have to use, but I'm going to give the English definition of it um, while I present to you this book. This book is not an autobiography. Um, Habib Alganian's um, granddaughter wrote this book on her grandfather, and he is remembered as a self-made industrialist, entrepreneur, millionaire, and foremost Jew of his time in Iran. As a philanthropist, CEO, chairman, Jewish leader, he was persecuted for being a Zionist while being responsible for a majority of Iran's economic boost during his life in Iran and during the Pahlavi dynasty. So although this story is painfully heartbreaking, I did cry a few times, it is a story of perseverance, strength, and what it's like to actually just be human in a time where evil was surrounding him. He had such positive views of, you know, all of the good he had done. And he thought in his mind that because of all the good he'd done for Iran, he built factories, he employed thousands of people. He and his brothers created such strong businesses and gave back to so many people, I think he thought he would be spared. And it just wasn't the case. It would have been the case probably um, had this regime not been just plain horrible. But anti-Semitism is big today, but it was also huge then. And just quickly before I get into the actual life of Habib Elganian. Um, I am going to say that for those of you who don't know, February 25th was a day uh, where we as Jews were told that it was um, a day of hate and that there are groups out there in the U.S. who wanted to um, seek vengeance. I'm not really sure, but um, that we were to be careful really was what we were. The um, Los Angeles Police Department, the New York Police Department, Beverly Hills Police Department all put out um, statements condemning these um, actions. So I think this is a great book to um, share with you all because I one, I hope you guys all buy it and read it for yourself, but it was a good book that I knew I needed to read and it seemed like a perfect time to start. So the book begins at the end of his life where the author and her father are in their New York City apartment listening to the radio while it announces from Iran that Habib Elganian is dead and that the Islamic Republic of Iran has executed him and about eight others that day. This quote is from the indictment uh, made in a crowded courtroom. Quote, 
in the name of Allah Habib Elganian, holder of ID card 6108, resident of Tehran, literate, spy, Zionist capitalist, is accused of the following. One, friendship with the enemies of God and enemy of the friends of God. Two, spying for the Zionist state of Israel. Three, gathering contributions for Israel for the sake of bombarding Palestine and Muslim Arab people. Four, investing money made from exploiting and destroying resources of Iran to help Israel, who incessantly combats, seals, and affronts Islam and God. Five, corruption on earth by means of destroying resources and helping in the destruction of an entire generation of Iranians. Six, war on God and the prophet of God. Seven, obstructing God's way and obstructing the well-being of weak nations against the value of humanity and Islam. Eight, corrupter on earth. Nine, helping the daily and cruel massacre of our Palestinian brothers. So these fabricated charges um, are just an exercise in cruel absurdity, honestly. Um, You are not allowed a court representative, so he did not have a lawyer present at his hearing. So he was given maybe a few moments where he could speak, um, and it is televised. The author was, I guess, able to see it. It's been said that he looked... Um, battered and bruised and that there was makeup covering his facial scars and bruising. The author is finding out with her, with her father in a New York City apartment that Habib Elganian is dead. And they find out through a radio. They haven't been able to speak with him for months because he's been in prison for so long. Um, though he was able to send out correspondence, he was never given any correspondence in return. So there are those letters that his family in New York received and they're in the book, but he unfortunately did not receive anything back, which is, which is truly sad. But in 2010, which I find extremely interesting, it's chapter two, um, in 2010, her, um, Shahrzad, the author, gets an email from her dad uh, that reads, Hey, I heard there was a mention of my dad in the New York Times today. Do you know anything about this? If so, let me know. So Shahrzad, who is, by the way, a, an AP um, journalist, uh, goes online and reads through, you know, um, everything she can to find out where his name was brought up and finds this story. There is a uranium plant in Iran, in the desert, and the, the systems that they use to extract the uranium, basically, is hacked. It's hacked and the, um, hack is, designed to make it seem um, like kind of invisible, like you wouldn't know through the entire process of extracting that at the end stage, it's going to give out and it's going to um, 
you know, burst. Um, and upon, you know, further, uh, research trying to find this hack, they found a string of numbers in the program. And the string of numbers is 1979-0509, which is a random, you know, set of numbers, of course. But if somebody's looking at these numbers, like I am right now in the book, 1979-0509 could look like it means the year 1979-05, which is May, and 09, which is the 9th. So it could look if the right person is looking at it, it could look to mean that this is the execution date of Habib el And although nobody is taking any credit for this cyber attack, um, because to this day nobody has, it looks like it was his <laughs> attack. It looks like somebody on behalf of Habib did this cyber attack because to this day, I mean, it's impossible to know because it's classified and no one will address it, um, that this was a code or if it was a hidden message. But I do have to wonder, like, is this, could this be Israel's way of saying like, Habib, this one's for you? So about a month after that happened in 2010, the author quits her job and decides that she's going to spend some time putting together this book. So she goes on a full out mission and amazing the things that she's found. Um, one of Habib's brothers, his older brother, Davud, uh, wrote out his own memoir where he categorized every part of his life and gave it to his daughter, who Shahrazad went to. I believe her name is Perry. And Shahrazad took that and went across the U.S., went to um, Jerusalem, spoke to dignitaries, spoke to anyone she could about her grandfather, and put together this amazing, amazing book. So hats off to that cyber attack, which launched this amazing book in my opinion. So born in 1912, um, Habib is the third son of seven children and they live in what is called um, the Jewish ghetto, um, but Mahale is what you call it in Farsi. They are one of the poorest families in the Jewish ghetto, of which there are a lot of poor people. So them being the poorest kind of gives you an idea of just how um, far he's come. But his his father was a traveling tailor. Like he sold suits, um, and he would leave in the winter time and come back. They say like right before Noruz, the Jew, uh, the Persian New Year. So um, a little bit on Mahalat. So the Jewish ghetto is um, in Iran. Because they were Jewish, they kind of self-segregated, um, which is different than other countries where they were forced into segregation. Iranian Jews did this on their own. They created their own kind of safe space. Um, they were known 
in Iran as being, well, Jews were known in Iran as being um, najas or like dirty and pure. So even like Muslims thought even like a touch from a Jewish person's hands or water that slipped from their hands would be um, immediate like dirt or impurities that would come on to you. So it's not much different than the segregation that we saw in the U.S. Um, in the um, Mahala, there is also what they call the Hammam, which is a um, public bathhouse. And that's where children, well, everybody, would about once a month go and clean themselves off uh, with the public bath water that they had available. And this is like early... 19, you know, hundreds. So like this was 1912. This had been a regular thing with Jewish families, of course. So the ones that survived into the 1900s were tough. So these Jewish families had gone through so much in terms of um, different uh, reigning forces that came in and tried to convert them to different uh, religions. So there were you know, 50,000 surviving Jews living in the ghettos in Tehran, Esfahan, Shiraz, Yazd, and Hamadan. So being born in the 1900s, 1912, as Habib was, it was kind of a slow start, but things were improving for the Jews at this point, is on paper at least. Um, so you know, by 1905, a lot of Muslim merchants began pushing for a Western style like constitution, which became um, more of a widespread thought process, though it did take some time to actually push through. It was beginning to become like the forefront of people's minds where they wanted a constitution, they wanted order and laws um, and for you know, prosperity to come to their land. There is a famine that does um, begin in 1917, and it goes until about 1912, where um, most people are going through a really, really rough time. And Habib's mother, uh, Khanum John, is cooking meals for the family, but she's also, along with her older brother, um, Haji Mirza Aga, in association with a, um, a Jewish food organizations that are being supplemented from abroad, are giving uh, food away to those less fortunate around them in the Mahala, in the Jewish ghetto. So as long as there are financial aid coming um, from Jewish organizations abroad, they do try to help out other families in this famine time. So by 1918, Habib is about six years old. He and his older brothers, of which he has two at this time, they go to school. There is a school that opens up a couple years prior in the Mahala, and it's called the Alliance Israelite University. And it's a French school brought on by French Jews who during the French Revolution obtained rights. And in France, when they obtained rights, they uh, sent money to Iran 
um, to use it for education purposes, which lucky for this family, the boys were able to go. And although they were very, very poor, um, Davud, Habib's older brother, states in his memoir that he wrote that he even saw his mother at this time like sell off all of her goods that she had, all of her things from her dowry, anything of value, she sold so that they could go to school, so that her children could go to school and so that her father wasn't the only person bringing, his father wasn't the only person bringing in money so that um, the kids could, could go to school. It's said that this little act of sacrifice made a huge impact on the children, something that they won't ever forget because they realize at this time that because of Habib's mom, Khanumjan, they also realized that women are resourceful. They're able to bring money into a household and they really should be known as being able to be independent while serving their family's uh, best interests. So although the kids did go to school for quite some time, Habib, who didn't like studying much at all, and he was said to like only really be good at math, he dropped out when he was like 12 or 13. Um, but at that point, um, there were about 15 schools now um, in the Mahala. So there were big strides happening um, in terms of education for the Iranian Jews brought in by the French uh, teachers and fundraising boards. And thanks to that, most of these men, and, and I believe women, I believe women did go to school as well, they all learned French, uh, which I could understand even personally knowing that my grandfather also spoke French. And I always thought that that was so cute, but it really was because in the ghettos where my grandfather also was brought up, he went probably to this school. I mean, not that I know, but he did probably go to this school and that's where he learned French. Uh, there was a moment where they decided to lean outside of French and more into Farsi with a little bit of Hebrew mixed in. Um, but by 1921, Habib's dad was able to purchase a house just a few blocks outside of the Jewish ghetto on a street that Muslims and Jews were allowed to live. And it was just a few blocks away from the Allianz school. So the new home, it offered more space. It gave them um, a little bit more of an opportunity to get ahead, right? So the family stayed in one of the four rooms and then they rented out the other rooms. Everyone sat on the floor, they ate on the floor, they all slept on the floor. Uh, two or three people would sleep on a mattress, one with a quilt. Um, but I mean, all of these uh, advances were happening, but Jewish persecution was still, you know, at the forefront of their minds. It still persisted on. Um, and in 1922, one of the school's Jewish workers and a mullah, um, which is like a Muslim clergyman, um, they get into an argument, okay? So they get into an argument and a mob rushes in 
and starts fighting people at the school. The French embassy that was nearby uh, dispatches um, uh, people to come help, relieves the teachers, escorts all students home, and the school becomes closed for several days. Rioting ensues, and Habib's grandfather, maternal grandfather, he gets attacked um, while trying to fend off people from entering his place of business. He ends up going to the doctor. They do um, stitch him up, but he is so enraged at this point where he decides that he's going to find the most powerful man that he knows, a man who has visited his store to drink his homemade red wine. This man happens to be the man who would become king of Iran. His name was Reza Pahlavi, and it was Habib's grandfather who went in search of him after this riot to go speak to him about what had just ensued. So the year is 1922, and Habib's grandfather goes to tell Reza um, Shah, well, his name is Reza Khan at this moment, obviously, because he's not king yet goes to tell him about the hardships that he and his family are enduring in the Jewish ghettos and that this is just, you know, not okay. And, um, you know, Reza has been to his shop. He knows him. So when Reza's um, guards come out to stop um, Habib's grandfather from getting any closer, Reza Khan, who is soon to be the new king at this point he's just a commander-in-chief of the army he stops the guards from harming habib's grandfather and sits down and talks to him and says what's what's going on he recalls the whole situation and reza looks at him and says that he is aware of the problem and that he is working to help improve the jewish the jews condition um, in the meantime, he advises Habib's grandfather to tell his sons to move out of the Jewish neighborhood. So this is all folklore, of course, but it is um, written. So I did want to share that. <laughs> um, but it also does show that there is a distinct moment in time where you see Muslims in the country identifying that it is not okay what's happening with Jews in Iran and that there is a tide that will turn. So Reza uh, Khan, who is the commander-in-chief of the army um, in 1922 when this conversation happens, spends the next three years um, making strides through, through the army and he is eventually crowned king in 1925. And by this point, Habib's grandfather, who had two sons and obviously a daughter, has managed to get his sons out of the ghetto. They've become business partners and they're well on their way to creating a sort of like, quote unquote, prosperity amongst their, their family, right? They first owned a grocery store, then they ended up... Um, selling menswear on Lalazar Street in Tehran's like most prominent retail um, you know, section. It's inspired by Paris's Champs-Élysées. 
and it's a high traffic, uh, kind of a bizarre, you know, um, looking space. And sorry, when I say bazaar, I, I mean B-A-Z-A-A-R, um, not bizarre, like crazy. So a bazaar in the Middle East is um, kind of like a marketplace, a big marketplace. And this family has kind of started to climb up out of the Jewish ghetto and into a prosperous area where, you know, they're able to have businesses. They're now importing different um, fabrics from France to sell in Iran, in Tehran, in this um, shop. So there is a lot being done. It's just slow moving for the Jewish community as a whole. But at this time, you have to remember, now that Habib's grandfather has these two sons and Habib's mother, they are trying to pull themselves up out of, you know, the Jewish ghetto, and they eventually all do. Now, um, Habib's mother has children. So these children, who are Habib and his older brothers, are being taken in by their uncle, uncles, rather. And their uncles are in business, so they are working under them and being mentored by them. So John, an older brother, and Davud, an older brother, and Habib, who are now educated, uh, they speak French, they're able to work in this world, um, all decide to get into business with each other, which ends up being a great idea. So John and Davud, the older brothers, they... Um, they travel, they travel with their uncles, they go to Russia, they go to France, all for um, importing purposes. They bring all of the things into Iran to sell. Habib, though, doesn't actually do any of the traveling. He stays um, and he decides that he wants to work in one of the uncle's um, hotels. The, the hotel is called Gilan No. It's a little bit north of the Jewish ghetto. And he, he starts working. He hits the ground running. He is a front desk clerk. He takes care of the guests. He does some accounting because remember, he's very good with math. He changes money for international tourists. Um, but he learns how to be um, a, kind of the face of a hotel and all that comes with it. He also, at this point, he's showing signs of being entrepreneurial. One day, a Swiss um, traveler leaves behind a magazine filled with different like watches, and Habib decides that he is going to buy one of those watches, and he, he orders it, it comes, he ends up selling it to a guest, realizing that wristwatches that the Swiss had at that time were kind of a novelty piece because pocket watches at this time were much more popular. So buying wristwatches were something that Iranians just didn't really have in Iran. So he takes the magazine again and buys a few more watches and sells those for profits as well. Fast forward to 1929 and Habib gets um, drafted into the army where he then learns a lot about being independent, but it also instills in him a big chunk of um, 
pride in his country. Meanwhile, Reza Shah's modernization plans like for Iran are moving like full speed ahead. He wants to modernize Iran. Some say it happened a little bit too quickly, but look, the Iran was not modern at all and it needed to establish itself. So Reza Shah started creating universities, hospitals, building roads and railways. Like none of this was there before. So he's trying to connect the entire country through roads and bridges. And it's, you know, a lot of new rules, one of which is imposing a nationwide dress code. This happens in 1928. So this campaign forbid women from wearing the chador, which is, um, for those who don't know, um, like a cloak um, of helping women stay modest in religious aspects. Interesting little tidbit here is that Jewish uh, women's chadors had to have bells on them so that they could signify their presence, uh, kind of like a yellow Jewish star. The king at the time, when imposing this, was trying to make Iran more modern, wanted to make Iran more European, was trying to westernize a country that uh, was living a very rural life. Although this was thought to empower women, that's what the Shah was thinking, it did the opposite. So what did Habib do? So he sees the changing society, right? He sees the ban. And in a conversation that the author Shahrazad gets from one of his friends, the book notes, quote, when Reza Shah banned the veil, I sat and thought about it. Habib said, quote, the women who were used to wearing a veil would sit, still not come out of the house without covering their hair. So I decided to sell hats. He found a few hats in Iran. He went to uh, Lalazar Street and he rented a store. And once he realized that the hats were popular, he started ordering hats from France. He went to Paris and purchased more hats and he brought them back home to Iran and they became wildly popular. Now at the time, imports were really restrictive in Iran, but hats, women's hats, were allowed into Iran. So in Habib's entrepreneurial mind, he is well aware that women's hats are going to do well. He continues to import them. He finds a model on the street, this pretty young Armenian woman. He hires her right on the spot to model all of his hats. He says the model looked good in all the hats. So women thought they would all look as good as she did. There was quickly a line every morning out there to buy them. So his hat business is um, doing well. He decides that he is going to find an office in the um, bazaar, in the marketplace, um, and start selling his hats there. He finds like an old bearded man uh, to sit next to and asks if he could put a table in the corner of his shop so that Habib could work out of there. And by 1936, he is like majorly flourishing and he is able to get his own um, spot in the bazaar. He gets a second floor office. And like many other future, future um, industrialists, he starts to put his footprint 
um, as a Jew in the in the bazaar. Now, within the same amount of time, well, in 1936 at least, Habib is 24 and he gets married. He gets married to his uncle's daughter, his first cousin. Her name uh, is Nika, which means the one who does good deeds. Now, what's not, it's not her birth name, but they nickname her Nika because as soon as she's born, their house... Um, becomes filled with good luck. Uh, and if you don't know this, Persian, I, I, I don't know if I want to generalize it, but Persian men are very superstitious. So she came with this notion of she brings good fortune into your, your lives. And this proved to be true. Once Habib and Nika got married, um, Nika's dad who was Habib's uh, mentor and uncle, started to kind of lose his luck while Habib kind of just like exponentially grew from there. Habib's older brothers, um, John and Davud, along with Habib and another um, brother of theirs, put together an LLC and decided to go into business together. They all had different strengths, so it really worked out well. Um, But Habib was in charge of sales. Um, The other brother, John, was fluent in French, so he corresponded with companies outside of Iran. Uh, Davud was excellent with math, so he focused on the finances. And another brother had applied for quota allocations for imports with the Ministry of Economy because he was um, more suited for that kind of work. What the brothers believed to be true was that business with Switzerland was open. And because a lot of people didn't know this, um, Davud, one of the brothers, notes in his memoir, this was one of their biggest advantages um, in their business from the beginning. Jump to 1939, where Habib and Nika's first son, Fred, was born. Feridun. But um, a really cute story regarding that is that Nika's dad, which is Habib's uh, uncle and mentor, had an ambulance ready um, in case of an emergency that would require rushing Nika to the hospital. So I just thought that that was a really cute story. Okay, so continuing on. Between the years of 1939 and 1943, there was a huge boom. I mean, there was a war going on, of course, and there were a lot of Polish uh, Jewish refugees that did end up coming into Iran by way of um, the railroads that were uh, put in by the by the king. The Elga LLC, the brothers LLC business that they had put together, started to boom. Um, they were so happy. They talk about how prices rose for their watches and silks. So their profits, um, obviously like more than doubled, but a major development that happens after is that, um, John, the oldest brother decides to move to New York from there in 1943, he starts sending the products that are in the U S that Iran doesn't have like ladies, combs, plates, glasses, forks, knives, jugs, socks, uh, cotton radio, sewing machines, all back to Iran for the brothers to then, um, sell. So by the end of the war in 1945, 
Habib and his brothers were among what historians later called like, quote, the old time entrepreneurs who made their first million during the commercial boom of World War II. Shortly thereafter, Habib's younger brother moves to New York to join the oldest brother. And around that time, Iran lifted the ban on selling secondhand clothing. So this brother then decides to start sending all the used clothing in the U.S. to Iran to then resell. The brothers also had exclusive rights to import Singer sewing machines um, and Bolova watches to Iran as well. During this time, um, Habib and his older brother, who still lived in Iran, also became partners with a Muslim businessman, and he was uh, trying to get the sale of cottons to Russia underway, so the brothers helped him do that. They invested like $1.8 with him, and then within a few months, um, they were able to get back their money and continue on, so they created a new LLC with this man, right? Fast forward a few years later, and the youngest brother, Habib's youngest brother, um, is just finishing um, college in Massachusetts and notices that it's become like, quote unquote, like plastic city. Gives him the idea of selling plastics in Iran. The seven brothers laid a big bet on manufacturing plastic goods in Iran. And the younger brother, Eddie, who was in... Um, Boston at the time, bought the two machines, um, bought two comb molds and a plastic bowl mold that Habib told him to buy and have them all be sent to Iran. These machines, every 15 seconds, they would make six combs. Habib and Davud set up the machines in a property on uh, Lalazar No Shopping District in the office that they had. They named their plastics manufacturing company Plasco. So John and two of the other brothers are in America. Davud and Habib, they are in um, Iran with the two younger brothers now in charge of managing the factories. Soon after the machines got to Iran, Plasco company started producing buttons and the factory was filling up with like 20 machines at one point. And this marked the first time plastic goods were being manufactured on such a large scale in the Middle East. Okay, so now they are millionaires um, post-World War II. They move to Shemiran, which is a city north of Tehran, and they find an opulent uh, mansion and start to set up shop or set up their home life there. The factories are being run by Habib's younger brothers. He is up at Shemiran where he has an office where he conducts business, of course. And the family has now successfully expanded and diversified their small family import business into a multi-million dollar like conglomerate with Habib um, as the public face. So his ascent into this titan um, like role, um, it began with a powerful group of Iranian merchants when they decided to open their doors up to the first Jewish man. In 1959, Tehran Chamber of Commerce um, issued its first time um, communique that would allow a Jew to join its ranks, right? So two men at that time were being considered and then they had to like, you know, get the 
get the votes to be voted in. Obviously, um, Habib won by a wide margin. So he made history um, for being the first Jew in the Chamber of Commerce in Tehran. So over the span of like two and a half decades, this small family-run business, um, that honestly, it grew to like an estimated 6,000 people that Habib um, employed. It really flourished because the Shah had the same goal as Habib, to modernize Iran and pull it, it out from its from its background, right? So being on the same track, everything was going really well. The brothers were now in plastics. They had moved on to uh, refrigeration and stoves. They've manufactured all of this, aluminum, construction, real estate, mining, um, and they also had different like side projects with different um, business partners that they had brought along the way. The author then notes like in chapter 11 that she is looking up Khomeini's speeches and she finds her grandfather's name, Habib's name, in a footnote of one of the speeches. So without him knowing... In the 1960s, Khomeini was very well aware of who he was and honestly believed back then even that he was a part of Iran's problem. Habib was in the speeches, specifically in April 10th, 1964. He was in speeches of Khomeini's when he was talking about how horrible uh, he thought Reza Pahlavi was for Iran. Specifically, though, he noted a lot of problems he felt with like um, allowing women to vote and, uh, and allowing non-Muslim people to hold office and um, be a part of the clergy, which Jewish people did um, end up becoming part of the clergy. Obviously, they own their own property, but Khomeini is in Iraq at this time leading speeches with footnotes of Habib Belganian's successes as being, you know, horrible for Iran. And this is an important thing to know now because back then when Habib wouldn't leave Iran because he genuinely believed that they wouldn't like do any harm to him, uh, he didn't know how bad Khomeini actually hated him. He thought that because he had brought so much um, power and manufacturing um, businesses to Iran that he would have been saved, but he had no idea how much he was hated by Khomeini and these clergymen. So I'm running out of time and I do want to keep this under an hour. So I'm just going to kind of fast forward through a lot of things here. In 1975, which is kind of like a clear marker in time, Habib Ghanian was scapegoated by the Pahlavi uh, king. Things were not going well for the economy and he was a scapegoat for the king. He was sent to prison and the prison wasn't a hardship, though he was away from his family for about like six to seven, eight, nine months, which was actually horrible for him and he, he hated it. But the king's um, like overzealous uh, quadrupling the price of oil to the world kind of backfired on him. So he needed a scapegoat. He chose Habib and the newspapers ate it up and it was something that he thought the people of Iran could blame him, Habib, instead of the king so that he can kind of control the masses. 
Mind you, up until that time when Habib had made it so big along with his brothers, they had created a um, Jewish, uh, basically like a Jewish fund, and they called it Sandor Meli. Um, and it was basically like a, a, a huge pot of money that Jew, people who are, you know, flush with cash, Jews especially, uh, would add to this pot. And whenever anybody needed anything for maybe like their children's uh, operation or if they had a daughter who was getting married and needed um, clothes or or a dowry, this fund that um, Habib and his brothers and this Jewish council created would help fund that. Every time he moved, he donated the land to different people who had um, good uses for that land. For example, when he moved to Shemiran, he donated his last house to a doctor who then converted it to a hospital, for example. In 1978, um, Habib's um, wife died. And it's said that because she was the good luck charm, when she died, his luck turned. And it would kind of prove to be true because in 1978, now we're all thinking, what's coming up next? The revolution, right? That September... In 1978, Habib actually gave his son, who was left in Iran, plane tickets. And he said, you need to leave Tehran, like, tomorrow. He had heard word that the next day was going to be something that was known as Black Friday, uh, which isn't the fun it is here. It was a huge protest and demonstration where they had, Western agencies had, said that thousands of people had died, but now looking back, they report a death toll of 84. Some of the wounded were taken to a Jewish hospital on Cypress Street, and Dr. Kamran Baruchim, the young Jewish doctor who had overseen the renovations to this hospital, um, thanks to Habib's efforts to keep like the old hospital operating, performed a lot of surgeries um, that are noted here in this book, saving a lot of lives. So by October of 1978, it was still okay to be able to travel in and out of Iran. So Habib makes another trip out to New York where his brothers live. Um, and he is like generally there for a checkup um, to see, see to the business. He actually goes to the Mayo Clinic also there. Um, but his brothers are like, why are you going back? And he says, quote, what would anyone want with me after everything I've done for Iran? He says, I have to go back to Iran. Mahnaz is alone, his daughter. How can I just leave my life there and stay here? I haven't done anything wrong to Iran. I built buildings. I built factories. I helped Iran develop. I employ so many people. I haven't done anything bad to Iran that anyone would want to get me for anything. Nobody needs to worry about me. Don't worry. I'm fine. I'm going to go back to Iran. In November of that same year, 1978, Armand Kaplan, the director of international affairs at the World Jewish Congress, um, goes to Iran and in a note that was once confidential but is now not confidential, he describes his entire trip and everybody that he met there and how he wanted to remove all of the Jews from Iran before the revolution really occurred and then um, and finding a safe way to do that was really his primary concern for visiting Tehran. While he was there, he met with a lot of people. 
the number one person he wanted to speak to was Habib Elganian. So in this note, it talks about different people he met with and didn't meet with, but wanted to. For example, he wanted to meet with the chief rabbi Yadidia Shofet, but the rabbi's son told them that Shofet was sick. Ended up being that he wasn't actually sick, but he had five weddings to actually um, oversee that day. Now the note um, it specifies that he, from 4.30 to 7.30, he met at a private house full of five different Jews, um, namely President Habib Elganian, who was the former president of the Iranian Jewish community, a former Jewish deputy of parliament, Loftullah Hay, a very wealthy Jew, Dr. Ari, um, a banker, and there was a host, Kamran, we don't know the last name, but also was present Hamid Sabi. The notes indicated that these men were kind of like in a state of shock, um, that, that um, they could understand why uh, people wanted to leave, but that they were not leaving and that they thought that everything would change, you know, that this wasn't the future and that this would all pass by. Two weeks after Kaplan left Iran, the Israeli airline El Al began to triple its flights to Tehran so that they could evacuate as many Europeans and Iranians that were in Tehran. These planes were filled to the brim of people. Four days after that, Habib was no longer able to leave the airport. And in December of that same year, 1978, um, there were approximately 2 million people that were marching in the streets with banners that said, like, death to the Shah and arms to the people. Um, it was then that Habib knew that it was time to get Mahnaz, his daughter, and her two boys out of Iran. Mahnaz's um, husband was in Israel. Who, he was getting treatment for his MS. So after lunch one day, he went to the boys, to his uh, grandsons, um, Shahab and Shahruz, and his daughter Mahnaz, and he said, tomorrow morning, you guys are leaving. Here are your plane tickets. Make sure you take nothing with you. They're going to check you at the airport. Don't take anything valuable with you and just leave. So his life after Mahnaz left was pretty dark. He was alone in the house. He had nobody. His One of his last friends there um, came by one night, and he recalls this to Shahzad, who's writing the book. He says, I was begging him to go. And he said to me, I brought the biggest machine to Iran for the aluminum factory. I can't leave my people who are working for me, who are dependent on me. Kamran Baruchim also confirmed Habib's attachment to his fa factory and his workers. His oldest son, Fred, said, quote, he wanted to be in Iran where he was important and a force to be reckoned with. Quote, he believed there were no reason this great country would be handed to extremists. The book also has different letters that Habib wrote to Mahnaz, and they're so, so sweet. January 18th, 1979. Dear Mahnaz, these days are very difficult, but I'm hoping they will pass. I go to the office in the mornings, but stay home in the afternoons. I wait for your call every day, but there is no news from you. Try to get in touch with me. Fred and Elian are here with me during the day, and we're planning to have them stay at night too in Shemiran. I'm waiting for the address of your apartment so I can mail my letters directly there. Please send me pictures of the kids and you. I'm waiting for a letter and I have a lot of work now, so I'm going to leave you. Papa. 
it's just a few months later, a few weeks, sorry, that um, he is then um, brought in by the revolutionaries and put into prison. That spring, half a dozen or so efforts to free Habib from prison were setting were happening um, in Tehran, in New York, Washington, Paris, London. Um, Rabbi Shofet also in Iran was sending letters trying to speak to Khomeini to get um, Habib Al-Ghanian um, released. Um, his brothers in Washington met with Senator Ten Ke- Ted Kennedy um, explaining the situation, um, but Senator Kennedy was sympathetic, but said that there was nothing that they, they could do. In Iran, Kamran Baruchim, the doctor, um, and Hamid Sabi tried also. On May 7th, there was a letter written by Rabbi Shofet to Talagani explaining how Habib for years had supported the community, how charitable he was, how he was the most important person in our community, and how everybody loved him, and so on and so forth. Um, they took all the letters to the prison that Habib was in, and they called everyone they could. Jews also weren't the only ones pushing to get Habib released. Their Muslim partners in the textile business and the vegetable oil factories um, all were writing letters and trying as hard as they could to get Habib out. There are a lot of photographs of the trial, and The trial was televised in Iran. In May 1979, um, there is an American finance expert who is married to an Iranian that was living in Iran at the time, and she wrote out what she saw. She said, quote, I remembered Habib Elganian's pleasant smile with deepening sadness and horror as I watched this televised kangaroo court trial. Facial bruises and swelling showed through heavy makeup. Bearded mullahs dressed in dark cloaks spat questions at Habib. Before he could answer, a mullah answered the question for him and twisted it into an accusation. Elganian had no defense counsel and seemed disoriented and unsteady in his chair. Quote, if this could happen to Habib Elganian, any Iranian could be arrested for being a collaborator with the Shah and any foreigner accused of being a Zionist spy. In the televised trial, Um, there's a quote in the book. It says, for all these reasons, I require the death penalty for the accused and the confiscation of his estate and the estate of his entire family. Habib is then allowed to write out his wishes, his last wishes. And um, it's pretty long, so I'm not going to read it all out here. But he is kind of writing his last will and testament here. Um, and minutes later, he stood blindfolded in front of a firing squad. And it's said that his last whispering final prayer is Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. <laughs>